نستعينه ونستغفره ونتوب اليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم اما بعد فان اصدق الحديث كتاب الله واحسن الهدي هدي محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وشر الامور محدثاتها وكل محدثه بدعه وكل بدعه ضلاله وكل ضلاله في النار anyway i'm quite pleased to be here with my brothers uh, at al aqsa islamic society in the city of philadelphia and i hope that this opportunity of getting a chance to visit the brothers here in philadelphia is one in which we can mutually benefit from one another. I can benefit from you by the uh, questions and remarks uh, that you pose and hopefully inshallah ta'ala in my talk you'll find something which is beneficial also for you. And you know the uh, before I get into my lecture I'd like to uh, something came to my mind is that this is a uh, the fact that we're here at Al-Aqsa Islamic Society and during these times when Masjid al-Aqsa for what this society was named after is under this Jewish and Christian plot to wrest it from the hands of the Muslims and return it to the and sell it to the disbelievers and finalize that pact you know the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam informed us in a hadith that reported by al-Bukhari and Muslim and others that among the signs of the day of judgment prior to the occurrence of the day of judgment is that the Muslims will fight the Jews and this is one of the final events before the day of judgment the Muslims being led by Isa ibn Maryam alayhi salam Jesus the son of Mary the Messiah who will return back to earth and lead the Muslims will fight the Jews who will be led by a Dajjal or the what is known in English as the Antichrist or the false liar who will claim that he is Allah and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said that the battle would go to such an extent that the Jews will flee after uh, the Prophet of Allah, Isa ibn Maryam, Jesus the son of Mary, slaughters or slays the Dajjal, the false Christ, and the Jews will then flee to hide behind rock and tree. And on that day Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will decree that the rock and tree will speak and the rock and tree will say, O oh Abdullah, O Muslim, there is a Jew behind me, come and kill him. Except for the Gharqa tree which is of the trees of the Jews. Now, this hadith there is a point in it in when the Prophet ﷺ told his companions تُقَاتِلُونَ الْيَهُودَ You will kill the Jews and the scholars of Islam question why was it that the Prophet ﷺ addressed his companions saying that you will kill the Jews even though the Prophet ﷺ knew that this event would occur after their era in the future so the scholars of Islam, among whom Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani in his commentary on Sahih al-Bukhari, Fatr al-Bari, said the reason why the Prophet said, you will kill the Jews, it's an indication that those people who will gain this victory at the end of time will be people who are upon the same religion as the Prophet's companions. In other words, those people, those Muslims when we read this hadith, are not going to be the Muslims of today. Those Muslims who are upset, every single opinion, every single person other than the Messenger of Allah 
and his noble companions. Whether those Muslims will be those, those Muslims who adhere to the sunnah of the Prophet and adhere to the way of the Prophet's companions. And in such manner, uh, to paraphrase the scholars like Ibn Hajar al-Falani, they have explained the significance of the Prophet saying to his companions, you will kill the Jews, even though they themselves were not the ones who were going to partake in this, but it is an indication that those who will partake in this victory of Islam will be those who are upon that same religion as the Prophet left his companions upon. And there are other evidences which support this. One is the hadith in Abu Dawood where the Prophet informs us that the, uh, he tells us about the history of this Islamic ummah that it will go through different stages. He mentions that there will be first a nabuwa or prophethood and then Allah will raise that with the death of the Prophet Then there will be a khilafah or a succession to the prophethood which is following the way of the Prophet Wasallam. Uh, the Prophet of Wasallam, his way and that was of course the khilafah of the four uh, leaders of this Ummah Abu Bakr, then Umar, then Uthman, then Ali. And then he mentioned some periods where the Ummah will fall down and digress. And then he said there will be a Khilafah again upon Ala Minhaj Nabuwa, upon the way of prophethood. Meaning that those people who stick to this menhaj of the Prophet, this way of religion that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent Muhammad with, they're the ones who are going to reestablish the Khilafah upon the way. And it will not be those who have deviated from that. Now, the reason why I started my talk like this, first because of the significance that we are Al-Aqsa Islamic Society, and also because this has direct bearing with the topic which is at hand, which is that of Taqlid. Because without doubt, those people who will be victorious near the Day of Judgment, whether against the Christians in the battles that precedes the battles against the Jews, or thereafter against the battles of the Jews, will not be those people who have split the religion into sects, following different madahib, and choosing the statements of this upon the Prophet Now, this topic of uh, taqlid and madahib is a very large topic, and it enters into a number of issues. One of these issues is the issue of knowledge. What is knowledge? And therefore, if we were to say that taqlid is ignorance, so then therefore, what is knowledge? Another topic which this deals with is the issue of ittiba'ah. In other words, the relationship the Ummah has toward the Prophet Muhammad What is his right upon us? And what are our duties toward the Prophet in terms of obeying him and following his commands and taking from his guidance? It also enters into the issue of ijtihad. Who has the right to give a pronouncement on religious matters when there is not an evidence from the Quran and the Sunnah? And what does one do when a scholar gives an ishtihad? What is the position of those people who the ishtihad is given to? And likewise, it deals with the issue of the madahib, the various madahib. Whether the madahib of fiqh, like the four well-known madhabs, being the Hanafis, the Shafi'is, the Malikis, and the Hanbalis. And also the other madahib which people make taqlid to. Whether madahib in belief, like the Ash'aris, or the Matrudis, or the different Sufi orders like the Tijanis, Naqshbandis and others. It also deals with this issue in the sense that who are the people who started these madahib? What was their intent behind it? What is the history of these madahib? This also is part of this topic. And likewise, of course, the topic of taqlid. When is taqlid, which means to follow an opinion without proof? When is it permissible? When is it required? And when is it forbidden? 
And likewise, this topic deals with the arguments. Those who blindly follow a madhab have arguments which they use to buttress their claim that what they're upon is the correct way. And so therefore it deals with discussing their arguments and refuting those arguments. So, as you can see, it deals with a lot of topics. And by Allah's grace and mercy, I mean, there is some writings in the English language which the brothers and sisters can refer to, which I'd like to uh, make mention of at the onset, because there's no way to cover all these topics in a short lecture for 45 minutes or an hour. Uh, one of these, of course, is obviously the Book of Allah, the Qur'an Kareem. There are over 30 passages in the Qur'an where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala informs us that we must obey the Prophet and this becomes very clear if you're, for those brothers who are reading English translations when you read the translation of which is entitled The Noble Quran by Taqidin Hilali and Muhammad Muhsin Khan because they usually will in parentheses when a verse comes about obeying the Prophet emphasize that and a brother can sort of follow that through and see the various passages which are more than 30 in number in the Quran which tells us to obey the Prophet Likewise in the books of Hadith we find the Prophet also informing us to obey him and you can find this in many collections of hadith. If you look in Al-Bukhari, volume 9, there is a section which is called Kitab al-I'tisam bil-Kitabi wa-Sunnah or the book of holding fast to the Qur'an and to the Sunnah. And here Imam al-Bukhari mentions some of the hadith of the Prophet where the Prophet is commanding us to obey him and follow him. And likewise in Sahih Muslim you'll find in the first book, Kitab al-Iman, some of these hadith. And in Sunan Abi Dawood you'll also find some of these ahadith in the third volume in Kitab al-Sunnah, the book of the Sunnah where Abu Dawood mentions this. And likewise in the other collections which gather hadith from different sources like Mishkat al-Masabiyah, in volume 1 you will find a chapter in the book of faith just dealing with following the Sunnah of the Prophet So here we have 30 passages in the Quran and numerous hadith of the Prophet and also from the writings of the Muslims we have information to benefit us. Which one is Al-Risala by Imam al-Shafi'i. Uh, this is an essay, a book that Imam al-Shafi'i wrote, which was translated by a Christian Iraqi called uh, Khuduri and published many years ago by Johns Hopkins University, and I'm sure you probably have seen it. Al-Risala, uh, there Imam al-Shafi'i mentions a lot of arguments showing that the incumbency of following the Prophet Muhammad and also some of the arguments used by those people who reject adhering to the way of the Prophet and likewise, two books which have appeared recently which I'd like to make mention to. Uh, one is The Prophet's Prayer Described, Sifu Salat al-Nabi by Shaykh al-Albani. In the introduction to the book, he mentions some of the statements of the four Imams telling the people not to blindly follow them. And finally, a book which is, uh, has appeared recently by al-Masumi uh, called Blind Following the Medhebs, which is a letter which he wrote to some Muslims from Japan who had become Muslims and were confused of this issue some people telling them to be Shafi's and others of them telling them to be Hanafi's and he wrote them this essay explaining to them what is the position of the four Madahab in Islam and the final reference is for the, uh, those of you who have old issues of Hijra magazine there was a, uh, a series of articles from a translation of a booklet by Sheikh Abdurrahman Zakhara concerning the position of the Salafis toward the four Imams and this also is this issue of uh, Taqlid and Ishtihad and also gives a small introduction of the four Imams and finally the evolution of the Madahib of Fiqh by uh, Abu Amir Phillips also sheds light to some of these historical issues. So as you can see there is a lot of information, a wealth of information for a person to benefit in this topic. However what I'd like to do today is to sort of uh, 
bring all these matters together as a single whole and leave the details uh, for the brothers to uh, investigate upon uh, themselves or if there are other opportunities in the future where a series of lectures can be given upon this topic and to discuss these matters. We all know that the uh, religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is based in the revelation which he sent to the Prophet Muhammad and therefore everything which is of benefit for us in the hereafter is contained in that revelation being the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet and that is why the scholars of Hadith used to start their books describing the relation of the Prophet Muhammad or describing the signs shown to the Prophethood the truthfulness of the Prophethood of the Prophet Muhammad for instance if you look at Sahih al-Bukhari the first book that appears is Kitab Badul Wahi or how did the revelation begin here Imam al-Bukhari is trying to show us that the religion starts with the revelation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then he mentions afterwards Kitab al-Iman the book of faith meaning that the first requirement upon us is that we believe in that revelation which has come down to the Prophet Muhammad and then he mentions uh, the book of knowledge to show us that when you believe in that revelation then you know the different matters of knowledge and then he starts to describe the various aspects of knowledge through the remaining chapters and books that appear thereafter among the evidences that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded the Prophet Muhammad to follow that which was revealed to him is Allah in the opening verses of Surah Al-Ahzab where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says يَا أَيُّهَا النَّبِيُّ اتَّقِ اللَّهَ وَلَا تُطِعِ الْكَافِرِينَ وَالْمُنَافِقِينَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ عَلِيمًا حَكِيمًا وَاتَّبِعْ مَا يُوحَى إِلَيْكَ مِنْ رَبِّكَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ خَبِيرًا So in these two verses Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and says O Prophet, fear Allah and do not obey the disbelievers and the hypocrites Verily Allah is all-knowing and all-wise and follow that which was revealed to you from your Lord Allah is aware of what you're doing in other words Allah is knowledgeable of your different acts and statements and feelings and so forth so here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is coming to the Prophet Muhammad to follow that revelation which Allah gave to him and likewise it then becomes our obligation to since we believe in the Prophet Muhammad to then follow that very revelation which Allah sent to the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Allah says uh, in the Quran that وَأَنزَلْنَا إِلَيْكَ الذِّكْرَى تُبَيِّنْ لِلنَّاسِ مَا نُزِلْ إِلَيْهِمْ وَلَعَلَّهُمْ يَتَفَكَّرُونَ So here Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala in Surah Al-Nahad says that we have sent down to you Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam the remark that you may explain to mankind what has been sent to them that perhaps they may think in other words perhaps they may reflect upon this revelation and follow it which will bring them success and we also know that this revelation which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu is complete for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in, a, in verse of Surah Al-Ma'idah Al-Yawmu Akmaltu Lakum Deenakum Today I have completed for you your religion in other words the religion of Islam the revelation which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu which can be found in the Quran and Sunnah is complete and then there is no need to turn other to than that to anything else however though people unfortunately in the later generations as the centuries passed on 
this concept of following the Prophet Muhammad became weak in their minds. And there were reasons for that. Among the reasons is that the people, and this happened very early, they began to have doubts concerning the Sunnah of the Prophet In other words, what is our position towards the Prophet Sunnah? And Imam al-Shafi'i in his Risala addresses this issue. Some people began to divide between the hadith of the Prophet in the way it has reached us. You know, we know that the hadith of the Prophet is of two uh, different modes of transmission. There are those hadith which are known as mutawatir. And mutawatir means those hadith which have been conveyed by so many chains of narration, it's impossible for it to be a lie upon it. And there are other hadith which don't reach this stage of mutawatir. They have been uh, transmitted to us, but not in so great numbers, and they're called as ahad hadith. And they are all non-mutawatir hadith. So some people, uh, very early on in the time of Imam al-Shafi'i, started to doubt whether we should follow these ahadith which are ahad. And they felt that we should only follow the mutawatir ahadith. And if you read in the Risala by Imam al-Shafi'i, Imam al-Shafi'i debates one of these people, and he discusses with them that the sunnah has to be followed in its entirety. And during the time of the Prophet there was no distinction made between if a report came from a single companion or if a report came from ten companions. And as why, for instance, we see that the Prophet Muhammad sends Mu'ad ibn Jabal, one man, to the people of Yen to teach them the religion of Islam. And likewise, the Prophet used to send with letters to the different kings of the earth calling them to Islam, one individual. So had the report of a single individual not been permissible, the Prophet would have always sent large numbers of people. But this shows that the religion of Islam, as long as the narration comes to you from some trustworthy source, you must also obey that. Likewise, a group of people appeared which denied the Sunnah in all totality and felt that the religion of Islam was only based upon the Qur'an. So when this happened, when the concept of adhering to the Prophet weakened, the people then would then look to other sources outside of the Sunnah of the Prophet to fill in the blanks of the religion of Islam. Because as you know, the Qur'an is general. And therefore, in order to follow the Qur'an, you need to have specifics. And if you're not going to take these specifics from the Prophet then therefore the specifics will be taken from other sources. However, among those people who adhere to the Sunnah of the Prophet those who we refer to as Ahl-Sunnah al-Jama'ah, they also digressed. And they also sort of left this concept of ittiba' and replaced it with blind following of one of the madahib. And this occurred when the different statements of fiqh of the scholars began to become codified. Initially, the scholars of knowledge, when they would answer a question, they used to answer it with a hadith. Imam Ahmed replied to over 40,000 questions by saying, Hadithana, I was informed, and then saying a chain of narrators, and then saying the hadith of the Prophet However, later on, during the 3rd century or 4th century, the scholars began to codify or to write the different opinions given by the scholars. And then for different political reasons, uh, some scholars would gain a certain following. And then people started to rely upon these books and not rely as much upon the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Even though the original scholars who would compile these books knew very well that one should rely upon the Qur'an and Sunnah. And for instance, we find al-Rabi'ah, 
who is one of the students of Imam al-Shafi'i, he summarizes some of, uh, not Arabi, excuse me, al-Muzani. Al-Muzani, who is one of the students of Imam al-Shafi'i, he summarizes one of, in his, one of his books, the opinions of Imam al-Shafi'i, and he writes in the introduction, I have summarized here the opinions of Imam al-Shafi'i. Knowing clearly that Imam al-Shafi'i has forbidden people to blindly follow him in the matters of religion. So initially the scholars who did this did not do this for ill reasons, but rather they did this in order to facilitate the spread of knowledge. However, as the centuries passed, people forgot this intent and started to blindly follow one of these madahib. And they, their knowledge of the statements of other scholars and their knowledge of the text of the Quran Sunnah weakened. Until eventually what happened was the Islamic world went through a lot, lot of chaos and that is when the Mongolian invasions occurred. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because the Muslims fell into sinfulness, He sent the Mongolians led by the armies of Genghis Khan. And as a result, a lot of destruction occurred in the Islamic world and a lot of centers of knowledge came to an end. So the scholars at the time, fearing the loss of the Sharia, came with a fatwa saying that it is required for the Muslims to follow one of these four schools of thought. In other words, they felt in order to protect the Sharia of Islam, you have to, your action must be with one of these four madahib, whether Hanafi or Shafi or Malik or Hanbali. And they would not permit any other opinion to be stated. The reason why was because they did not want people of ignorance to speak. This was their motivation behind it. But this further weakened action in accordance with the Sharia and further weakened knowledge of the Prophet's Sunnah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And then this later came on with another fatwa, which said it was impermissible to, uh, excuse me, the next fatwa that occurred was that one, any of these madahid that one follows is correct. In other words, whatever opinion you find ascribed to any of these four madahid, it is correct, even if the opinions are contradictory. So therefore, if you take the opinion that touching your wife breaks your wudu, this is correct, just like if you take the opinion that touching your wife does not break your wudu, this is also correct. Because they said any opinion of these four madahibs was correct. And this was further weakened the sharia. Until finally, in the, in, the la, in the last few centuries, another opinion appeared saying that any opinion you find in the books of fiqh, no matter who said it, throughout the centuries, it's permissible to act upon it. So people then started to follow what they look at the easiest of opinions. In other words, if I want to uh, uh, do uh, an act of usury, an act of riba, all I need to do is find somebody in the history of Islam who gave a permissibility of saying that, and therefore this is correct to do this action. If I want to, uh, I mean, anything that comes to your mind, you know, concerning women's dress, concerning the use of uh, uh, riba, usury, concerning... Uh, dealings in terms of uh, commanding good and forbidding evil and all the different uh, marriage, divorce all you need to do is just find somebody who said it and that's okay to follow that opinion now when the Muslims reached this type of attitude and then the final event that occurred was the uh, conquest of the lands of the Muslims by the disbelievers in the previous century in the century before that what happened was that these disbelievers the first thing they did was they took out the Sharia and they implanted their own laws and their own customs in the lands of the Muslims and also their own educational systems. And that is why for the majority of the Islamic world now, the laws which they rule by are 
laws which are based upon either the code of Napoleon or British law or American law or so forth. So the Sharia was therefore completely removed from the life of the people and this led, of course, to what you see now where you have many Muslims who have no allegiance whatsoever to the Islamic religion and they live in a state of, we don't want to call them apostates, but they live in a state of, which is similar to apostasy in the sense that they no longer apply any of the Islamic teachings. So all these factors led to the weakening of ittiba' of the Prophet ﷺ, or adhering to the way of the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. Even though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded us in the Quran in over 30 passages to obey the Prophet ﷺ. Among these passages, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, قُلْ أَطِيعُ اللَّهِ وَأَطِيعُ الرَّسُولِ Say to them, O Muhammad ﷺ, obey Allah and obey the Messenger. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِن كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ اللَّهَ that if you love Allah as you claim, Allah tells the Prophet to announce to mankind, that if you love Allah, then follow me. Allah will love you and forgive you your sins. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has warned us from deviating from His command. Let those beware who deviate from His command, meaning the command of the Prophet. That either a fitna will occur to them, or you see them or that a very great punishment will occur to them. The fitna, as the scholars have mentioned, Ahmed and others, means a shirk, in the sense that a person hears the words of the Prophet and then rejects it. So by this rejection, he falls out of the fold of Islam. So in other words, the uh, in summary, the adherence to the way of the Prophet Muhammad uh, was weakened by these factors over the centuries. And thus we find ourselves a generation of Muslims who only know that Islam means to adhere to one of these uh, four uh, madhahib. Now, when we mentioned about taqlid, when we said that taqlid means, if somebody asks you what does the word taqlid mean, taqlid means to blindly follow somebody's opinion, somebody's statement without knowledge. In other words, because somebody said it, I'm going to follow it, not knowing that whether his statement is in accordance with the Qur'an and the Sunnah or not. This is the definition of taqlid. And uh, when we usually talk about taqlid in the madhahib, it is usually uh, talking about those four madhahibs which people uh, follow. And that is uh, the Hanafi and the Shafi'i and the Maliki and the Hanbali madhahibs. However though, what I would like us to understand that taqlid is not only restricted to that, to blindly following one of those four fiqh methods. Taqlid is a state of mind where people, instead of seeking the guidance which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent to the Prophet Muhammad through the Quran and the Sunnah as understood by the earliest Muslims, decide to choose and to leave these affairs, whoever that may be. Whether this occurs in the matters of fiqh, like these four madahib, or if this occurs in matters of belief, because there are also madahib in belief that people follow, whether it occurs in the different madahib of uh, purifying the soul, which are the Sufi orders that people have innovated and follow, whether this occurs in political issues, in the sense that one blindly follows a certain political movement, or in matters of da'wah, where one follows a certain jama'ah blindly, the issue of taqlid is, should be understood in the most widest sense. And when we're discussing the importance of adhering to the way of the Prophet 
we should not only focus about adhering to the way of the Prophet Muhammad only in the matters of fiqh, but also in matters of aqidah, in matters of suluk or conduct, the way we worship Allah and the way we purify our souls. And likewise, in the matters of da'wah, how do we spread Islam to uh, Muslims and to non-Muslims. And likewise, in the matters of uh, politics, in the sense that if there was an Islamic state and how the Muslims govern themselves and how they rule um, their affairs by. And if we, uh, to talk a little bit further about taqlid, taqlid, as mentioned in the Quran, uh, is three types. One type is when you uh, adopt an opinion or you deliver a fatwa or if you're a judge you deliver a ruling not knowing if this is the guidance of Allah you know, we're not knowing that if this is based upon the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Uh, the second form of taqlid is uh, to blindly follow a person and not knowing that if he himself is a person who deserves to be followed. In other words, you choose somebody to emulate your behavior by and to take your religion from and you do not know if he's worthy of that emulation. And the third uh, type of taqlid which Allah has condemned in the Qur'an is to blindly follow someone after the evidence has become clear to you and to choose that one who you blindly follow. In other words, the proof from the Qur'an and has been made clear to you and you decide to choose to follow something else. This is worse than the first category. The first category means just to blindly follow not knowing whether it is guidance or not. And the reason why it's worse is because here the knowledge has come to you and you have turned away from that knowledge. So you have two sins here. The sin of turning away from that knowledge and likewise the sin of blindly following somebody in, and not knowing whether that is upon guidance or not. And there are verses in the Quran uh, which condemn uh, taqlid. Among these verses where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Quman وَذَقِيلَ لَهُمْ اتَّبِعُوا مَا أَنزَلَ اللَّهِ قَالُوا بَلْ نَتَّبِعُوا مَا وَجَدْنَا عَلَيْهِ أَبَاءَنَا That if it is said to them, to the disbelievers, follow what Allah has sent down, they say, no, we're going to follow what we found our fathers upon. In other words, we're going to follow the way of our people. It doesn't necessarily mean that their fathers, the one who gave them, you know, their parental fathers, the one who gave them birth and so forth, but it means the way of their people. And also Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, um, Surah Al-Zukhra وَكَذَلِكَ مَا أَرْسَلْنَا مِنْ قَبْلِكَ فِي قَرْيَةٍ مِنْ نَذِيرًا إِلَّا قَالَ مُتْرَفُوهَا إِنَّ وَجَدْنَا آبَاءَنَا عَلَى أُمَّةٍ وَإِنَّا عَلَى آثَارِهِمْ تَقُولُ قَالَ أَوَلَوْ جِئْتُكُمْ بِأَهْدًا مِمَّا وَجَدْتُمْ عَلَيْهِ آبَاءَكُمْ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in this verse describing the, that this is Allah's sunnah that whenever He sends a, a messenger before the Prophet Muhammad to any people uh, the wealthy ones and the, the people in charge of that society will say, no, we found our forefathers following a certain religion and we're going to follow their ways. And the prophets would then respond to them, what happens if, what if then therefore I've come with something which is better than those ways? Are you still going to follow, meaning are you still going to watch your forefathers who are upon them? And also uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Ma'idah, وَذَقِيلَ لَهُمْ تَعَالَوْا إِلَى مَا أَنزَلَ اللَّهِ إِلَى الرَّسُولِ قَالُوا حَسْبُنَا مَا وَجَدْنَا عَلَيْهِ آبَاءَنَا and if it is said to them, come to what Allah has sent down and come to the Messenger they say it suffices for us what we found our forefathers upon. Now, those people who taqlid might argue, saying, well look, these verses were revealed concerning disbelievers. Likewise, 
The same argument is used by those people who worship the graves of the prophets and other righteous people. They say that you bring us verses which were discussing idol worshippers. And we are worshiping, we're not worshipping idols, we are seeking the intercession of prophets or of righteous individuals. The response to this is that the, the important fact is not concerning who these verses were revealed concerning, but the meaning behind these verses, in that these verses condemn a certain attitude. The attitude of turning away from that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down to His prophets, to His Prophet Muhammad whether in the Quran or Sunnah, and turning to some other source. This is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is condemning. So therefore, whether you're turning away from this in totality, like the disbelievers who reject the Prophet of the Prophet Muhammad and reject his message, or whether your turning away is in some specific matters, you still receive some of that condemnation of these verses, whether it's in full or in, um, in uh, a little of that. And this is one of the arguments that the people who practice taqlid have. They have many other arguments. And Imam Ibn al-Qayyim, in a very uh, uh, great work of his called I'lam al-Qa'in, uh, describes a debate between a person who follows the evidence and a person of taqlid. And he refutes these people in more than 80 ways. And I've summarized in front of me some of the, uh, uh, method, some of the arguments used, three or four. Uh, one of it is that one should say to the people who blindly follow a madhab, are you upon basira? I mean, are you upon sure evidence that the one you are blindly following is more upon the truth than those who have forsaken? In other words, the scholars of Islam are not only in the four scholars, there are hundreds, indeed thousands of scholars of Islam. So when you have now chosen this one scholar to follow, are you upon sure evidence that this scholar who you have followed is more upon the truth in this issue than any other scholar? Now obviously, he's going to have to say, I am sure, and if he says that he is sure of that, we ask him, well then how are you sure? And he cannot say that. So if he says that I am not upon Basira, I'm not certain that the one who I'm blindly following is more correct than any other scholar in that issue, one should say to them, then what will be your excuse in front of Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, on the Day of Judgment, if you, and the argument here is to a person who is a Qazi, or a person who is a Mufti, or also in our, in our case, a person who is a teacher in a masjid, or an imam, or a person who is in charge of a society, what will be your argument in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when you are asked that you spoke and you gave this opinion or this statement and you were not upon basira, upon sure-sightedness that what you are upon is truth. Uh, likewise, uh, one should say to him that, that person you have chosen to blindly follow, is he ma'asul, meaning is he free from any error? In the sense that he does not make any errors whatsoever or not. Obviously they cannot say that he is ma'asul. They cannot say that he is free from any mistakes or errors. Those who do say this are those really extreme groups like the Shia and the Sufis who attribute to their leaders isma or uh, impeccability in the sense that they make no errors and no falsehood. And this usually leads them outside of Islam because they will usually attribute to their leaders qualities which are belonging to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or qualities which only belong to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu But most of these people like those who follow the four Imams will say, yes, he is not ma'asum or not. Then therefore you say to them, how can you therefore give an opinion? Or if you are a judge, you know, make a judicial ruling. Or if you are a mufti, give a fatwa. Which will lead to something being declared as halal, lawful, or something haram, forbidden. Or something which is required, wajib, or something which is mustahab, encouraged. 
or something which will lead to the shedding of blood in the sense that you give an opinion which leads to somebody's head being cut off or which leads to warfare or whipping of somebody's back or an opinion concerning which allows sexual relations or prevents sexual relations like in matters of marriage and divorce or the transfer of money and wealth from one hand to the other hand and you are blindly following a person's statement which you admit that he could be mistaken. Because once you say that the one you're blindly following is not ma'asul and he can make mistakes, then therefore you don't know that in this issue or not did he make a mistake or not. Because you're just blindly following him without evidence. So therefore how can you permit yourself to take these stances and not know whether it's the truth or not? And likewise one can say to them, for instance, those who you blindly follow, and you give this opinion concerning in this matter, is this the religion of Allah, or is it not the religion of Allah? Because if it's the religion of Allah, then therefore all of mankind is required to follow that. You cannot have any other divergent opinion. And if it's not the religion of Allah, and you're not certain whether it's not or not, how can you therefore make it incumbent upon people to follow something which you yourself are not certain if it's the religion of Allah or not? Another argument that should be said to these people before your imam was born, what were the people upon? Were they upon guidance or error? In other words, we know for instance that uh, Imam Abu Hanifa died in the year 150 and Imam Malik died in the year 179 and uh, Shafi'i died in the year 204 and Ahmed in 241 and likewise those scholars of uh, Aqidah who people blindly follow like an Ash'ari, he dies in the year 300 or 310, something like that and or those Sufi leaders that people follow their tariqah who died throughout the centuries, whether it's Abdul Qadir Jilani who dies in the 6th century, or those who come after him. What were the people upon before these men were born? Were they upon guidance, upon error? Obviously they cannot say they were upon error, because I mean they're saying that Muhammad Sallallahu and his companions would have been upon error, and those who lived before these men. So if they were upon guidance, what was that guidance they were upon? The response is the Quran and the Sunnah and the statements of the earliest Muslims. So therefore, if that was the guidance, how is it now that you are willing to forsake that guidance and go to the statement of so-and-so? And likewise, you can say to them that those imams who you blindly follow, especially the poor imams who are known for their knowledge and their precedence in Islam and, their, and the blessing that Allah has given us to, uh, to us through them, they were very strict about following, uh, blindly following them. They said that it is impermissible, as Abu Hanifa said, it is impermissible for a person to follow our statement not knowing the proof which we have based it upon. And Imam al-Shafi'i said that if you ever find any statement of mine or anything I said in a book which goes against the Quran and the Sunnah, throw it against the wall, meaning discard it. And that I will, I'm like, I have revoked myself or I have cast myself from that statement whether during my life or after my death. And likewise, Imam Malik has said that every single individual takes from his statements and rejects, except for the person in that grave, meaning the Prophet And Ahmed ibn Hamad said, do not blindly follow me or Malik or Al-Awzari or Abu Hanifa or Thawri, but take from where they took. So the statements of the four Imams, which can be found uh, in this book, uh, Introduction to the Prophet's Prayer Described, and also the references in the classical books, are very clear. So if you're going to say now that you're blindly following these Imams, then it's from their methab not to blindly follow them. So therefore you are the first of people to disobey them in their methab. And likewise, uh, it should be said to them that when Isa ibn Maryam salam, returns to earth, what, by what methab will he judge the people by? Will he be an Ash'ari? 
Or will Isa al-Maryam will uh, follow one of the four Imams? In other words, he will rule the people by the Hanafi or the Shafi or the Maliki or the Hanbali method? Or will he be a Naqshbandi? Or will he be a Tijani? Which religion will Isa al-Maryam be upon at the end of time? Obviously, he's going to be upon the Qur'an and the Sunnah, as the Prophet indicated, that he's going to come as a just ruler. So therefore, how is it that you can follow one of these Imams blindly? And this is definitely not guidance. And it's uh, just to bring out a point to show you how these blind people, uh, blind, those people who blindly follow the Madah, have willing to go to great lengths to lie. Uh, against the uh, Prophet of Allah وسلم, or against the earliest Muslims. Uh, one of the statements reported in the Hanafi Madhab that uh, one of the uh, scholars was told by Al-Khibar to uh, take to the Hanafi Madhab and to tie them in a, in a chest and to put chains around it and drop it in a certain river in Central Asia so that when Isa will come back they'll pull this chest out of the river and then they'll rule uh, he'll be able to judge by the Hanafi Madhab. This shows you to the degree how they are willing to uh, lie. And those brothers who have a chance to read Arabic and investigate the books of fiqh, you will find that the way they are right in these books of fiqh, especially among the later day scholars who blindly follow the madhabs, they'll say, walana walahum. It is for us and for them, as if there are two different religions. They'll say, qal al-khusul, that those who uh, are against us, you know, who are arguing against us, say, and their, their way of following the religion is that whenever they find an ayah which supports their madhab, they pull out that ayah. And they will try to use it to make it seem as if they're following the Quran Sunnah, but in actuality all they're doing is they're blindly following the madhab. And likewise, if they find a hadith which supports their argument, they'll pull out the hadith as if their religion is based upon hadith, but really they are blindly following the madhab. And what shows us that is that you find them sometimes take a hadith, the same hadith, and they will uh, take half of the ruling in the hadith and they will uh, forsake uh, the other half of the ruling. And I'll give you some examples because it just shows the mentality of the people of taqlid. So for instance, uh, they say, like in the Hanbali Method, they say that uh, if standing water, you know, water that does not flow, like a, uh, uh, like a well, or like a lake or something like that, somebody uh, urinates in that, okay, it does not make the water, um, uh, does not make the water nedges, does not make the water filth, because none of the three properties of water are being the scent or the color or the taste has changed. Yet at the same time they say that if a person sticks his hand in that water before uh, washing that hand after he's gotten up from sleep it makes the water impure. So here they take the same hadith and they use it to prove their argument in one sense and at the same time they use it to deny another uh, uh, or another ruling in that same hadith. And likewise, uh, they say, for instance, the, like the Hanafis, they'll say that the proof that the saliva of the dog is uh, najis, is filth, is the hadith that the Prophet ﷺ said that if a dog licks from your plate or from your uh, ania, from your cup or whatever, 
you need to wash it seven times, one with, with dust. Yet at the same time, they say you should only wash it one or three times. So they use this hadith to prove that the saliva of the dog is najis, but at the same time, this hadith mentions that you should wash it seven times, and they say no, you should only wash it three times. So here is how they take a single hadith, and they'll use it uh, to support one of their arguments, but at the same time, they will use it to reject, uh, they won't use it to other arguments which their methab does not support. And uh, Ibn al-Khayyim, I mean, mentions a lot of examples, maybe about 20 or 30, but those two should be sufficient just to get the idea that even when they bring forward a hadith, they will only take from that hadith that which supports their methab. And if that hadith encompasses more than one ruling, then they will reject the other rulings which go against their methab in that hadith. Uh, likewise, uh, when you look at the madahib and the spread of the madahib, you find that they are no longer really the opinions of those four imams. That over the centuries, the madahib have changed. And that is why if you find, if you study the, for instance, the statements of the four imams, like if you study the statements of Imam al-Shafi'i in al-Um, which is one of the books which he wrote, or in al-Risala, and then you study some of the statements of the later day Shafi'is, you find that there is a great difference, that often some things that Imam al-Shafi'i would have stated, which are clearly supported by hadith, they no longer will follow. And likewise with Imam Malik. Imam Malik, if you follow his, his statements as he gathered in Muwatta, you will find that it differs much from the statements of the later day Malikis. And likewise Abu Hanifa, the statements of his which have been gathered, or the statements of his two students, main students, Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani, or Abu Yusuf, uh, you will find... ...or not. This is where the ishtihad comes. I'm not a scholar to give an ishtihad for it. What we are required to know though, is that it is Allah's religion that has either required women to cover their face or recommended women uh, to cover their face. And then, if there is some sort of, uh, you know, leeway for women in the West because they're under some sort of danger or not, this is for the ulama to decide. Now you ask for the ulama, since you asked this twice, I'll say, I think, in my opinion, this is my opinion, that the ulama today, you can find, if you're looking for knowledge, seek it in three men. Ibn Baz, Ibn Uthameen, and Shaykh al-Albani. These three men have distinguished themselves among their contemporaries in terms of their knowledge and their piety and their awareness of the, uh, uh, what's going on in the Islamic world. So it's always good to seek knowledge in what they have concerning uh, these issues. That's not to say there are not other scholars who are equal to them or better to them or not, but I feel that these are the most, they are the imams of the Hadith of in our time. This is just my opinion. Yeah, Sheikh ibn Baz in Riyadh, Sheikh ibn Uthameen in Qasim, and Sheikh al-Albani in Sham.
I'm not saying that, you know, first of all, I never said for you to seek your religion from these Stout families, did I? I said there is a scholar who's living there, so what the royal family does is not necessarily what the scholar gives his opinion to. And the point is, is that the religion of one, I mean, whether it is in uh, anywhere in the world, Allah's religion is one for all people during all time. And that religion is what he sent to the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Inshallah ta'ala, there will come a day when we will find among uh, Muslims who are born in this country who will reach that level of scholarship where they can benefit the people of this country or other Muslims who live in similar circumstances in the West and they will be scholars in their own right who can give it jihad and so forth when that day appears alhamdulillah then we will seek their opinion because besides having religious knowledge they will also have a uh, deep understanding of what is going on in the day to day affairs of Muslims here, which might not be the same in Muslims elsewhere. But until that time comes, are we supposed to then, you know, neglect the knowledge which is out there in the Ummah? I say any scholar of this Ummah who adheres to the Quran and the Sunnah as understood by the earliest Muslims, the righteous Salaf, you should take uh, study from them. Personally, I feel that those three men are, have distinguished themselves amongst their contemporaries and are the leaders of Ahlul Jama'ah in our time. Now, if somebody feels that other scholars are, that, that's fine also. But the point is that we need to agree that religion is that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa and that as understood and to be practiced as that the way the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa taught his companions, Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, and Ali. Excuse me? No, yeah. well, I mean, my opinion about the need for ishtihad was not by me, it was taking it from them. And if you look at their, their work, if you listen to their lectures, if you come across their books, it's filled with ishtihad concerning so many issues. I mean, for instance, now, you want to do salah on an airplane. Where will you find the ruling for doing salah on an airplane in reliance on the traveler? You want to do now, for instance, if somebody needs, uh, somebody has a, uh, uh, an accident and there's a Muslim who just passed away and they say we can do an organ transplant to save this other Muslim's life. Where are you going to find that issue in uh, a book like Reliance on the Traveler? The only reason why I'm mentioning this book is it's probably the only manual, fifth manual available in uh, the English language. I mean, or any of these other fifth manuals. For instance, now, there is no khalifa. So, what are we supposed to do in this case? Who are we supposed to give our allegiance to? Muslims live now amongst non-Muslims. Where are you going to find it in these, uh, you know, medieval books of fiqh? I mean, there are thousands of issues that have occurred now in the Islamic world which we need to know what the Islamic ruling is upon. It doesn't mean that when they were saying that there's going to be 
a need for ijtihad if you're going to rewrite the Islamic religion to fit uh, today. No, all it means is that those matters of the religion which are constant and do not change, like the acts of worship, like the matters of belief, like conduct, behavior in terms of speaking truthfully, being just, being uh, pious, and you know, acts of behavior and conduct, those things are the same wherever you are. But there are other issues in terms of society, in terms of family, in terms of rights, in terms of buying and selling, in terms of politics, and so forth, which have appeared that were not there in the time when those earliest Muslims wrote those books of fiqh. And to now say that we can only follow those books of fiqh, like the people who call to taqlid do, and that to seek an opinion outside of those books of fiqh is, uh, sometimes they go to the point of apostasy or heresy or ittidah in the religion, is not only impractical, but smacks right against the revelation of Allah and also the commandments of those four imams who said, do not blindly follow me. Who are Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah? You have to understand that this term, Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, it consists of a number of Arabic words. The first word is Ahlu. And Ahlu sometimes is translated as people or family. It means those who deserve a certain uh, quality. So they are those people of the Sunnah and they are those people of the Jama'ah. The Sunnah here refers to that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu doesn't just mean the sunnah in the sense that they Quran and sunnah meaning hadith but it means here the sunnah means the way of the Prophet Muhammad in the most general sense so therefore it includes what you find in the Quran and also what you find in his words the Prophet's words the hadith and the jama'ah here refers to those earliest Muslims the Prophet's companions who gathered upon the sunnah and did not swerve out of it and it also it also implies that those people who stick to the jama'ah meaning they stick to those imams who are the, uh, for lack of a better term, the lawful rulers of the Islamic community. It says that if you have a Khalifa, and they do not split off, and do not give their obedience to him. Also, the term Ahl Jama'ah has two senses to the word. There's a general sense, and there's a specific sense. In the general sense, it means that you're not a Shia. You're not from the Shia. You're not a Shia. This is the general sense of the word. And for instance, like if you now, this is the understanding even of the Christians and the Jews. When you read in the paper now, and they say so-and-so is a Sunni country, they don't mean that he's following the way necessarily the Prophet Muhammad and the earliest Muslims. They mean that he's just not Shia. And when they ask you, are you a Sunni or a Shia? They usually, in this sense, they mean. There's also a specific sense to Ahl al Jama'ah. It means that those people who follow that guidance of the earliest Muslims, and this is what we call Ahl al-Hadith, the people of the Hadith. So therefore, in matters of belief, they do not follow those who have strayed from the beliefs of Ahl al-Hadith, and therefore are Ash'aris or Mathudis or other of these sects which are more astray like the Murjia the Khawarij and the Marchezida and the Jahmis and others and likewise in matters of worship that means they try to adhere to the way the Prophet they do not blindly follow one of these Madahab whether it's Madahab of the four Imams who are the scholars of Ahl Jama'ah or anybody else and likewise in matters of Ibadah and conduct, they purify their souls according to the methodology which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave to the Prophet Muhammad and they don't necessarily adhere to one of these Sufi orders which have over a century deviated and no longer follow that methodology which the Prophet Muhammad came with. So when you say Ahl al Jama'ah, it's in two senses. That general sense means you're not a Shi'i. And in that sense, anybody who's not a Shi'i enters into it. Whether he's Sufi, whether he's Mu'tazidi, whether he's Ash'ari, or whatever. 
And the specific sense, which is a praiseworthy sense, means that he is a follower of the people of Hadith, Ahlul Hadith, which refers to a certain group of Muslims like Shafi'i, Malik, Ahmed, like Bukhari and Muslim. Those earliest Muslims who had a certain methodology for understanding the religion, which they took from the Prophet's companions and their successors. And this methodology has been followed throughout the centuries by other scholars like Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Qayyim, Ibn Kathir, and also in our day like those three scholars I mentioned. This is not, uh, I mean, anything, uh, an evidence, clear evidence from the Quran. So this is just something that Ibn Taymiyyah mentioned in Iqtiyah Sraf al-Mustaqeen, where he said that at times it might become permissible, and so forth, for Muslims. And he gave an example that if a Muslim was giving da'wah or if a Muslim was spying and so forth, that the Muslims are not required to adhere in the hedi of Rahab, the outer appearance, as they were when, later when they were in a Muslim society. And he based this upon that these, these regulations came in Medina, and not in Mecca. This was his thrust of his argument. No, 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 because his evidence, his evidence is what? He's saying that the, these regulations came, you know, looking at the, at, the, at the Sharia, that when the Muslims were in Medina, and they were a Jama'ah, and they were strong, and then while they were in Mecca, they were not required to do that because they were in a state of weakness. So he introduced the principle of that sharia, and that's just his ishtihad. It's not necessarily something which we can say is binding for his understanding or not. There's, there's two issues here. First of all, those people who blindly follow these madahib, they are not aware of the arguments of those people who they're following. I mean, all they say is that we're Hanafis or Shafis or Madakis or Hamidis or whatever, and we're following this because this is our madahib. Over here, I mean, I'm giving you the statement of the scholar, the place where he said it, and also his reasoning to it. So there's a difference. Also, the second thing is that there are, there are binding action in accordance to that opinion. And I'm saying this is his ishtihad. This is his reasoning that his deduction in the matter and therefore it is not binding upon us necessarily to accept this principle or not. So there's I mean a big difference in the way of approaching the issue from those people who are making taqlid and the issue that I mentioned. Also, more importantly is that 
just the fact that there's a nas in an issue doesn't necessarily mean that, as you know, that each text of an issue, something which is clearly stated, and also has a mafhum, something which is implied. And sometimes the ulama deduce from these texts of the Quran and things which are implied, which are not necessarily clearly stated in these ahadith, but they've taken it from the general principles of the religion. So he deduced from the time that the Prophet he said the Prophet and this is his argument, because his whole book is what? His whole book is to say that, and the title of the book is, that it is following the straight path, the necessity of it is to be different than the companions of the hellfire. And then he starts to lay out this principle using first evidences from the Quran, then from the Hadith, and then from also uh, the statements of the earliest Muslims. And he then focuses on the issue of resembling them during times of Eid and religious celebrations. But in that discussion, he mentions one thing, that he says that these Ahadith, where the Prophet told the people to be different than the disbelievers, occurred while they were in Medina, and not while they were in Mecca. And therefore, when Muslims are in a certain circumstance, when they resemble the people, like the people in Mecca, and they are in states of weaknesses, in a state of weakness where the situation is similar, the obligation to be different from them to such a degree no longer uh, becomes required. And indeed, he says that sometimes it becomes recommended for them not to do it, like in the case if he's a spy or if he's giving da'wah, and he gives maybe another example or so forth. So this is his ishtihad, in the sense that he's saying that from angel sharia, from, if you look at the aims and thrust of all these hadith and so forth, that this type of action to be different from them is when there is an aim is to be achieved, a uh, benefit. And when that benefit is not being achieved and it's going to cause harm or there's a better benefit, that these regulations are not removed but are not required to that obligation. This is his ishtihad. I mean, if somebody feels that in his deduction over here he has hit on principle the sharia and this is the, the thrust of these hadith then alhamdulillah and if he does not feel that then he doesn't necessarily need to adhere to that and also this is an issue which is opens a door of you know as you mentioned that people will now discard a lot of things because they'll say well we're in a different situation and so forth and I only brought it up because the brother mentioned saying that we're an American you're saying that we have to cover niqab and there's a certain circumstance you know to say no that I understand the principle he's talking from and I this is a principle mentioned by the ulama, but it needs a, an alam now to just put each issue in its category. I don't know if that answers it. Yes, brother.
Concerning hijrah, and is it required, and what its evidence is, and what its parameters for hijrah, and when should one make hijrah, and so forth. And this is a very lengthy topic. I mean, it cannot be discussed in, in just a few minutes. But it's important to note that the majority of the scholars are of the opinion that it is required for a person to relieve, uh, leave the lands of the kuffar. And they base this upon certain evidences. One evidence is the verse in the Quran where Allah says, "Aladina tuwafahmu al-malaika wanimi anfusihim." And those who, when the angels seize their souls and they have caused injustice to their souls, they, the angels will say to them at the time of death, Who were you amongst? And then the dead people will say, We were weak and oppressed on the earth. Meaning that the reason why we were living amongst the disbelievers when you took our souls is that we were weak up, up on the earth. So then the angels will say, Was not Allah's earth wide enough that you can make Hijrah through it? And then Allah mentions that these will go to the hellfire. And then Allah says, Except for those men and women, and children who are too weak to travel or they cannot find means to travel then this is that perhaps Allah will forgive them so this is a clear Quranic verse showing that condemning those people who die amongst the disbelievers in the second verse also there's other hadith of the Prophet where like the hadith in the Sa'i where the Prophet says that Allah does not accept the action of any mushrik who becomes a believer you know, from prayer or fasting or otherwise, unless he leaves the lands of the disbelievers. <coughs> and also the hadith of the Prophet says that Hijrah will remain until Tawbah comes to an end, and Tawbah will only come to an end when the sun rises from the west. So there are many evidences from the... And also the hadith of the Prophet condemns those who live amongst the mushrikeen. He says that he is free from them. And he said their, their fires will never be seen together, meaning the distance that they live from one another. So these are all evidences that show that the strongest opinion that it's required to leave the lives of disbelievers. But the ulama have also differed in this. I mean, some ulama have divided into six different cases, like Ibn Uthameen. So that those who live among the lands of disbelievers fall into one of six different cases. And depending upon which case they are in, it becomes either required or recommended or for them to leave or recommended even for them to stay. And therefore, to discuss all this in a, in a few moments is not possible. However, though, what we should know, believe, is that hijrahs of types. The first type of hijrah is the hijrah to Allah and His Messenger. Mentioned in the hadith of Umar al-Khattab where the Prophet ﷺ said إِنَّمْ الْعَمَالُ بِالْنِيَاةِ فَمَنْ كَانَ هِجْرَةُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ فَهِجْرَةُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ That deeds will be judged by who they are attended for and whoever's hijrah is for Allah and His Messenger and His hijrah is for Allah and His Messenger. This hijrah must be done by every single Muslim wherever he is during any time. Hijrah to Allah and the Messenger. Hijrah to Allah by believing in Him as He describes Himself, by worshipping Him alone, and by judging oneself by His Sharia. And Hijrah to the Prophet ﷺ by obeying Him and emulating one's life by His 
uh, sunnah, his guidance. And there's the other type of hijrah, which is to leave the lands of disbelief, the lands of Islam, the lands of bid'ah, the lands of the sunnah, and so forth. There's the lands of sinfulness, even if it's the land of the sunnah, to those lands of righteousness and piety. And this the ulama have discussed, differed in its requirement or recommended and so forth, as I mentioned. And it's really going to be for the ulama to decide, I mean, for a person, is it better for him to, you know, make a hijrah from the United States to Bangladesh or to stay here or so forth. I mean, this is not something that I can speak about. But in general, we have to believe that we are not supposed to be amongst these disbelievers. And that whoever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in His mercy, opens for him the door to go to the lands of Islam, he should go there. And that we should know that Islam is not going to be established on the earth here in you know, Philadelphia or Washington, D.C. or so forth. And then from here we're going to straighten the affairs of the Muslims. No, the Muslims need to straighten their affairs out and then come over here and straighten the affairs of these people out. But for those of us who Allah in His qadr, in His degree and in His wisdom has determined that we do not have the means to make hijrah, whether because of political reasons that we're on a blacklist or something and we cannot go to the lands of the Muslims or we don't have the financial means or we don't have... These Muslim countries not running their affairs by the Sharia do not accept us because we don't have qualifications they want. And it's upon us to make hijrah to Allah and His Messenger wherever we are. As the Prophet said, Fear Allah wherever you are. Allah knows best, inshallah.